Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey, this is Trevor from Halifax calling in to say that I support creative control on Patreon because I think long-form arts journalism is a crucial part of music culture, and there's simply not enough of it out there today. Vish is a master interviewer, he lands great guests, and he has his finger on the pulse of the ever-changing music landscape, both here in Canada and abroad. For all of these reasons and many more, I think you should support creative control on Patreon too. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol today. I'm Visha's wife, and I will love him no matter what you do. And now he has me on the record saying that. Simone Schmidt is a multi-talented guitar player, lyricist, singer, poet, and artist based in Toronto, Ontario. A driving force in bands like $100 and The Highest Order, Schmidt has made some of their most outspoken and fascinating music under the name Fiverr. Most recently, Schmidt has partnered with Nova Scotia musicians Bianca Palmer, Jeremy Costello, and Nick Dorado to create an ensemble called Fiverr and the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition. Their latest release is You Wanted Country, Volume 1, which is out now via You've Changed Records, and prompted Schmidt and I to have a discussion about living in Ontario with the peril of the pandemic, capitalism and the music biz functioning like a cartel, where their new band came from and where it's going, paying homage to great country songwriters, the future and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at masseyhall.com where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free including performances by past podcast guests like The Weather Station. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 542nd episode of Creative Control, featuring the brilliant Simone Schmidt 
with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Simone. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. First of all, as I, I think I know where, where in the world you are, but I always ask, where in the world are you? I'm in the city of Toronto. City of Toronto. How are things going as we're speaking at the moment? Uh, for you, generally, given you know our collective condition here, uh, how are things going for you in Toronto? I am really fortunate because I rent an apartment for my brother. So I have like this immense privilege of having like a good relationship with my landlord at this moment. Yeah. And so, yeah, I feel secure and safe, but I feel like whenever I go outside, I'm reminded, like I was doing some grocery deliveries on Monday and I'm reminded that a lot of people don't have homes here. And so like there are more tents under the Gardner Expressway than I've see, seen since the 90s. In the 90s, like, the, uh, I think the Harris government, like, put in these tickets for people who were camping outside. And so, I, but I, you weren't really allowed to have a tent outside, but now there are all these tents just plainly visible. And, like, people are walking right up to you in the car and asking for money. And it's this really sad thing because I, you know, I haven't, like, really socialize myself not to roll down the window. It's like the first time in my life where I have to just like coldly say no because there's this virus and who knows who has it. Right. Could be me, could be them. Right. And so there's like, yeah, it's it's like, a, it's really sad in that way. And the, the city has said that they're going to like open all these hotel rooms. But then my friends who are working shelters on the ground, they're saying there really haven't been any accommodations made uh, for people, certainly not enough. There's 7,000 people in the shelter system, and it's just like really scary time. So I think, I mean, when I look at a city or when I think about how's Toronto doing, I think about like people who are the most vulnerable in the city, and it's not, you know, people aren't being taken care of right now. So, Are you able to, given the, the uh, increase in unemployment figures, uh, mm-hmm. are you able to ascertain whether there is a, this is kind of a weird way of putting it, but is there a new cohort of homelessness or a homeless people, uh, people who uh, have previously uh, not been subjected to such conditions? Can you tell, does that make any sense? I'm trying to figure out how to ask yeah, this question. Yeah, like you're trying to figure out if like COVID-19, like any unemployment that has followed means that there are more people who are homeless. And as far as I can tell, like I think that anyone with status so anyone who's like not afraid of the law in general can't be evicted at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't but I don't know like I I think there are a lot of people without status who live in Toronto who you know have no legal leases and so they have no nothing to fall back on and that's a possibility. But I would I could only say that I can't answer that question and I haven't read a statistic about an increased amount of homelessness. Yeah, well, you mentioned new, uh, more tents than you've ever seen before, and I just I wonder if those things there's a correlation there. I, yeah. I think that because um, tents have been outlawed, 
um, in Toronto for so long, we haven't seen them in plain sight. Hmm. But at this moment in time, they're like a measure that are being used in order to uh, allow people to social distance, perhaps, you know. Yeah. And then on the flip side of this, I still like have read uh, about uh, accounts of people getting ticketed like $750 fines for not social distancing, you know, people who are on the street hmm. and who are unsheltered. So I guess I'm I, I don't know if like these things are consistently like happening across the board. That's like the one rem- like massive reminder that like this virus brings us is like actually how chaotic everything is. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, read an article about you in the promotion cycle for this release that we're going to talk about in a few moments that suggested you had an undiagnosed cough and i thought that is an interesting and stark detail to include uh the interview the the journalist mentioned that you were having this uh, remote conversation of some kind and and that you were at your home in toronto yeah i had a cough for like three weeks and now it's gone okay that was that's cool okay your 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 relative your health is relatively okay at the moment yeah, it was it was a weird dry cough. I've never had this kind of cough before, it, um, and it came back twice, and it might come back again. But I, I have no idea what it is, and of course, I can't actually go check. There's no testing um, around COVID, and then you're not supposed to burden your doctor with anything that's not life threatening at this moment. Right. So as, as long as you're not okay. So you, so there's a a chance you you've had it or have it really. I guess there's a chance yeah. all of us do, but you have exhibited any others. Sorry, I'm not your doctor. This is not meant to be a checkup. <laughs> have you had any other symptoms? I'm just curious. No. Okay. All right. So you're okay. I mean, it's uh, honestly, uh, it's just nice to hear your voice. I haven't talked to you in a while, and uh, we know big changes. Right. Yes, I've moved to out of Ontario. Did you know? I I was just texting you about this. You knew I had left. Or we'd left. My family had moved. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I saw it on Facebook that you were in this little movie with your kids singing Neil Young. Oh, that's in right. In the basement in Edmonton. That's right. We moved in uh, January. Yeah, that's right. That's relatively recent. How was that performance for you of that song? Oh, it was beautiful. I thought that <laughs> your kids had excellent dance moves and yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for thank you for taking time to watch that silly thing we made. Yeah, that was uh, it was fun. We're you know, we're all doing our best and uh Obviously, they, you know, young, I mean, Mike, I think I'm naive in thinking they don't really know what's going on, but on some level, they don't know what's going on because we don't know what's going on on some level. Like, it's unprecedented. So it's uh, it's weird. Have you been um, in isolation? Have you been creative, per se? Have you been writing or, or thinking of things to, to try to, you know, convey in this period? Um. Okay, so I have been really my brain went on the fritz for a little while but there like are also like internal aspects of my life like great upheaval that coincided with COVID-19 that feels very personal that I would rather not enter into okay discussion so like I just feel as if you know I, I was already in a hard place before and then my and then this happened so there's like a bit of a pressure cooker and I don't tend to like I think when I was like younger, I used to create maybe as like a way of like disconnecting, dissociating, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like 
the way in which like you can use a camcorder at a family party in order to mediate your own involvement in it. Mm-hmm. And now I actually like the way in which I create art has changed so deeply. And I don't find that it's like a means of, of disconnecting or self-soothing in the same way. And so like right now I feel like there's something generative that's happening in me, but it's definitely like not um, an outward process. I do a lot of painting oh, okay. uh, right now and I write letters to people and to myself, but I don't largely feel like I'm interested in like, well, you know, and I never am this way. Like I'm never like, I'm going to really like generate a ton. Like, here we go. Like I'm going to just throw it out. I kind of want it to be like fully thought out thing, you know? Yeah. I, I, put it out. I appreciate that. First of all, let me say I'm, I'm, Sad and sorry to hear that you were already enduring some form of hardship uh, before we entered uh, into this uh, collective condition of dealing with a pandemic. I hope you're okay. It sounds like you, you're you kind of on the other end of it or are able to process it more. So without prying, I just wanted to say that. So I, I hope that you're okay. It's actually really cool. Thank you. But what is weird about this stalling is like you kind of have to be all right with just the fact that you can't there are things that you can't do anything about which is like often the stuff that we i think in general struggle with right like coming to a circumstance that you feel you don't have much control over and and having to accept it i think um yeah for me definitely like there's something about like the entire world mirroring that experience right now well uh, well yeah i mean friends who know me know that i endured a significant period of anxiety and when i went to see a a psychologist about it i learned that a lot of my anxiety was induced by control issues just this notion of trying to control things that were out of my control like death (laughs) or uh life and death like there's certain things you can't really control they're they're just going to happen and so i've had some friends check in about how i'm doing they knowing you know that they knew that i went through that recently uh, relatively recently, and um, I'm actually weirdly okay. Like, I, there's nothing I can do. I know, like, because I've recognized that I can't control it, um, a lot of things about the way we live and uh, where we're going to end up and all those things. You can't control the future generally, and I've learned that the hard way. And then now this is going on. I'm like, well, I can't. All I can do is do what we've been sort of prescribed to do, uh, be responsible and but otherwise, I can't control what's going to happen, and that's sort of helped me. Do you feel like you've had – is that a part of you, control issues, or, or, or just is that part of you know how you deal with things? Uh, you know, I don't I, – I, I can be, like, quite ambivalent. Like, I will just let things happen, or I'll, I'll, I'll try to control them. So I don't, like, have that hard of a time in trying to sit back. Hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, there are things that are, like – you know, if you're having, say, interpersonal struggles with, like, people you love, this is, like, a really hard time to try to deal with them in the sense that there's, like, this, like, beautiful, like, magnificent, like, reality, which is, that like, if you love the people that you love, you love them so deeply right now, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you're worried, do you feel, like, this concern. And then at the same time, because, like, people are socially isolated and, like, you know, I live alone. Uh, people live alone it can be hard to have conversations and 
and really like know that, you know, it can be hard to share information because you don't know like who's on the other end. You don't know how people are coping. There's no real way to check on them. Yeah. So I think like that in terms of like interpersonal, like mental health is like really hard. And generally, I think we do, you know, you can have like a deep trust in people to control what they can and, and, and seek help when they need it. But this moment in time, it's, it's actually really hard to know what, what we need. So it's like, yeah, I find that's more like where my anxiety is coming from is like, mm-hmm. just like not getting a great sense of how other people are doing. Um, well, there's a, there's a strange narrative around that, that's sort of come up around what we're all going through in terms of uh, a lot of it's been couched in kind of what is really essential work. Um, mm. what is essential labor, truly. And so I feel like that's been both healthy and strange because we're getting into dialogue about what really matters and what doesn't matter. And mm. um, as it relates to art I'm and culture, I'm a bit concerned uh, <laughs> about what it means because I already felt like a lot of the people that I like to talk to were increasingly marginalized by the material conditions that we all endure now and and the way things are consumed. And now when we, if, and when we get to the other end of this situation, I feel like that's in the air. Like the bright side is like a lot of the rules that we've been conditioned to accept just seemed arbitrary. Now internet limits and I don't know, lots of stuff like you can't work from home. That's outlandish. Well, actually you can, (laughs) <laughs> that's we're learning things about what we've been taught and told to accept but then the flip side is does art matter like does the stuff matter does the stuff that we think is important really matter like now that we're in this life and death uh situation like it's does any of that make any sense or resonate with you just this confusing understanding of what is essential and what isn't no i mean i i think like there are a few things that you're saying and like one is that like there's the arbitrariness of the value assigned within capitalism to like a range of things has been fully exposed, right? Yeah. I mean, I was like a PSW for many years. I'm not doing that work now, but as a personal support worker, making twelve to eighteen dollars an hour over the course of ten years, you know, working overnights where I got paid seventy five dollars an hour, yeah. like that's essential work. I always knew that it was undervalued. It didn't matter. Yeah. You know, and like to do that job right now would be especially scary. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, you'd be putting yourself at risk, but also be so concerned for like the people for whom you're working and, uh, who often like have different, different health and like might be immunocompromised. That stuff is like really like, it's brutal that care work isn't like paid for. So like being a musician and working in music and recognizing that, you know, as musicians, we're like so rarely paid. Yeah. And we're so rarely paid fairly and always having to work other jobs, you know, maybe getting like a grant and then having a touring cycle, which would like allow me to like have a prolonged period where I didn't have to work another job. But, you know, generally working other jobs, like I've been working at a restaurant as a dishwasher. Um, It's really clear when you're like working at a restaurant as, as a dishwasher, like the restaurant I worked at, like always paid me really fairly. And people were, were really like, wow, you make that much, you know, you make... $15 and get a tip out as a dishwasher. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. But 
it was clear in that ecosystem of that like restaurant it's called Donna's amazing restaurant mm-hmm. um they believe that the value of my work is as important as like the value of everyone else's work because if I wasn't doing this job then no one else would be able to yeah. and like understanding those contingencies like within that like small workplace was like something that allowed me to feel like a lot of dignity and also respect for my bosses which is like kind of rare <laughs> to feel yeah um yeah but so then like when i'm thinking about arts and labor and like how hierarchical that system is like every time i've like worked as a musician i've been reminded at like how little i'm valued and then that's not by people who like consume music or come to shows right it's by the people who are organizing the system right like they're the disparity of the payout for an opener who might get a hundred to two hundred and fifty dollar guarantee in a city like Toronto, opening at like a venue that can house five hundred people, and then the headliner who would clean up three thousand to five thousand dollars in that night. It's like really, really, really brutal. Like that yeah. disparity always just showed that there was this hazing that happened. And it wasn't like hazing like in a frat where like you could like move up as you got older. In fact, it just had to do with like whether or not you're working with the right administrators. So if you have good management, if you have uh, people who are booking you, who are part of like a circle of people who determine like who works at festivals and who doesn't. These things are kind of like cartels, really. Um, Cartels? Yeah. Yeah, because they actually like control... Like, who gets to actually do business? Right. Interesting. And, and so I always have been, I've been thinking about the music industry as, like, this, like, set of cartels for a long time. Hmm. Um, and, like, definitely, like, the demonetization of our work as, like, recording artists is interesting. Like, in a moment, like, right now where artists are being asked to, like, do these make-work streaming projects. Like, yeah, Facebook yeah, yeah. collaborates with, like, national art center to pay everyone like uh, each person a thousand dollars for a live stream now you think about that and it's like well we have these things called records like we have recorded music and we all paid a lot of money to make those records we paid for them to be mastered to sound beautiful and they contain on them like beautiful ideas some of them are live performances some of them are manufactured you pick what music you like but those records are there as like Mm -hmm. you know uh, like representations of our sound like why now am i supposed to try to like hustle to get like a proper mic so that you can hear me play like my acoustic guitar and like the thing you like about joel plaskett's music if you like joel plaskett's music i'm i'm not going to comment but like i saw a bit of his live stream is like not his acoustic guitar playing right like so like is it really that like what's the point of this kind of thing and i can see how in the interim it's like we're going to throw you a bit of money but the reality is is that if all of us weren't living week to week or gig to gig we wouldn't all be really really afraid for our future in the immediate and we would like be able to like sit back and think like okay so my gigs are canceled like what does what does this mean like what do i want to change about about how the music industry is working well so so the flip side of what 
you, this line of discussion is is that I, I actually think this has been a potentially galvanizing moment for our appreciation of art and music. Um, mm-hmm. I like sports, for example, and I can't think of anything more absurd right now than how many athletes receive millions and millions of dollars every year for playing a sport, and now they can't do anything. Like they can interact with people online and and then some of them are, you know, they're making little stories and videos and whatnot, but they can't actually employ their practice in a way that we can really appreciate remotely. Whereas musicians in particular, it's interesting to me that the subtext for me is, you know what saves our souls a little bit? And I don't mean to uh, quote Jewel. I don't know who I just quoted there, but yeah, it's Jewel. this is Jewel. Music is so significant that all of these corporations are trying to bend over backwards. It's like you mentioned Facebook and Instagram. Lots of people are doing it, right? It is such an accessible art form on some level and so significant that that's almost been the first trend or call in terms of getting what used to be a thing we went to go and see or process as a group of people. It's one of the first things I've seen really pop up as everyone's doing a live stream every day and it involves music. So mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is, yes, I think music has been, as you said, demonetized, undervalued. It's telling to me, and and almost ironic, that it's been one of our, it's one, it's been something we've all gone to now in this period of uncertainty and confusion and fear. We need music. Does that make any sense? Like, I like it. It just seems. So well, okay. Like I, I think that on like the most deepest level, music is something that we all have, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have a song in you, you, you know a song, you carry a tune, you make up a tune, and these things like you have whether or not you're getting paid for them. You know, you have. It's it's an incredible thing that humans have, and so like when we're thinking about like what's essential. I mean, on like this level of not like what's essential in terms of like helps people not get a virus, but like Hmm. what is something that's essential to us, like in ourselves. I think it music is one of those things. And one of the things that I always feel is so strange about the quote unquote music industry is how it removes music from from like regular people. Right. Like once you have a mass culture, then everyone wants to see like whoever like Billie Eilish or like like I don't know like do what they're doing there's like this one way in which it's like that has a lot more to do with spectacle than it does with music but actually like a really beautiful live stream that I saw was like a kitchen party that was like a one woman in Cape Breton playing the spoons oh and this is like this reminder that like people bring you know, have music in their lives and, and like use it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of like whether or not it's paid for, like that's the value of music. Yeah. Music as work is like a different thing. And, and I'm interested in like a kind of angle on that, which is that what would happen if we like drastically reorganized the economy at this moment in time, like rather than looking at like sectoral adjustments, yeah, but we were like, okay, 
universal basic services and universal basic income. Everyone's going to get 2000 to $5,000 a month, whatever you need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there might still, there could still be arts grants or like you could still work to be able to like record music or pay for certain things you might, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but like people who loved making music would still make music. It seems that that's happening even now, I guess. I I guess to potentially, I didn't even make this argument earlier, but I will contravene maybe where I was leading us earlier by suggesting that perhaps at the end of all this, certain things like music won't be deemed um, as essential as we thought they were. Let me flip it now. Let me flip it and say, in everyone kind of reflexing toward to, to music as a balm, Maybe we're actually, it's heightening the importance of music in a weird way. But it, it's heightening the importance of music while maybe making us question how we understand, like, showing the value yeah. of things. Yeah, yeah, Which is to say, like, I think that is happening all around, right? Which is, like, capitalism hasn't been, like, helping so many people out, right? If yeah. capitalism is based on the exploitation of the many for the profit of the few. And when you see like that within our, our like different siloed industries, yeah. you know, like everyone can name who owns Loblaws, right? The yeah. Westons, right? Yeah. Spot Spotify. What is Spotify? I don't Who's, know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I don't know who owns it. Yeah. I can't remember the but, name. I, I, they come up every once in a while. They talk about, it. I don't know. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I, I guess I'm just saying like, there's a point where you have to think like maybe it would be the best thing for music if the industries around it, you know, shifted and collapsed more. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because because like as it is the way in which the hierarchy works tends to reward the people who are paying out the most to the larger administrators and the people who run the cartels. So, yeah. Uh, like that's what I'm suggesting in this moment, like that we understand how much we value music, that people have a restored understanding of like how important music is in their own daily practices and in their own daily lives. Yeah. And, you know, those of us who like spend our lives working only at music, like, or trying to like reserve as much time for music, like it would be great if we were just supported and we didn't have to worry. But I don't think like, the way things have been organized lately, which is like to try to make yourself like an export ready phenomenon, right? Like a lot of the funding through the business, uh, music, music business grants is around like export ready stuff. So like you want to try to make art that isn't necessary for your necessarily like for your local audience. Right. And it's, and it's for like an American dominated mass media to like pick up. Right. Mm-hmm. And like you're, it's supposed to, proliferate around the world in a particular way you're supposed to make like digital content which is really like feeding digital outlets like yeah i'm on i I just got asked to be on a jury for this um music fund and i'm i'll just i'll be frank i'm a bit confused by some of the criteria because if you don't have more than 500 followers on on each of the prominent social media platforms i'm i'm meant to disqualify the applicant and i'm like what like i don't even i mean first of all that's 
I'll, yeah, I don't know if this will disqualify me from being on the thing because I haven't expressed this to them. <laughs> but I mean, mm-hmm. that's gross. Like that's, I mean, if you don't have, I don't know, that has nothing to do with, I'm not even being asked to, to judge the, the artistic merit. I'm just supposed to verify that the thing is real, that the yeah. entity that's applying is real, and mm-hmm. that uh, they have, um, that other people have become convinced to follow them. And I find that really odd. And that's been a, an aspect of all of you are completely right. Our, our granting agencies seem for the most part, I don't want to say this with a broad brush because I think a couple of them don't do this as much, uh, but there are a few that really uh, want to reward people for being viable. And all viable means is people outside of Canada are going to be interested in what you're doing. But I think like, like the arts councils are a lot different. Like Canada Council yeah. for the Arts is not that way. That's right. And I really always appreciate that. So I don't want to like just use this big brush. But the, I think the, the, OAC, the, OAC, like, the, OA, the Ontario Arts Council, I would argue, is also similar. I've sat on some of those juries and it doesn't yeah. feel that way. Yeah. I think like most of the arts councils are, there's a big difference between music business, right? Yeah. And arts funding. Mm-hmm. So music business development, which is like factor, mm-hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the money comes from for artists. So when you see that, the thing is, is that we don't all operate in these distinct um, markets. Like we all operate in the same market. So while I might be like able to get, you know, I'll I'll be totally transparent. I am not in a place of precarity at this moment because I applied to write a weird research-based project around like the mind that my grandfather came to work in when he immigrated to Canada. You know, I got a chunk of money for that. And so in this moment, I got it from the Canada Council for the Arts. I'm so grateful because I don't have to worry. Um, But I can't get factored to fund a lot of like anything. And there are people who have the reverse situation. The funny part is that we're all playing this. We're often all playing the same venues, right? Yeah. So like, it's, it's like, it's really interesting. Like, But that's like a question about like what is music and what's it for and who's using it for what. And you know who's got an amazing live stream everyone should check out is Jonathan Ajemian. Oh, nice. Who's like a piano player. And he plays, I don't think anyone's paying him at all. He plays most days early at 9 a.m. And it's Eastern Standard Time. And it's really beautiful. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Like It's weird. It it's, it's so weird having a muse, isn't it? Like. People are like, why do you do the things? People like will probably ask Jonathan. Like you're saying it in in, in awe of him, but I feel mm-hmm. like there's a slight questioning when you say he's not getting paid. He's just doing it. I do this thing that I do, and I'm not. I don't get a lot of remuneration for it. You do what you do, and there's not. You know, you mentioned having to work other jobs to to support yourself and, and essentially your muse. Like it's weird. We. Anyway, this is a a bigger psychological question, <laughs> and uh, I end up having these kinds of conversations about motivations and. Uh, but people who only do things for money like run the world, and that's actually just the scary part. But 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 <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm potentially saying is that we've painted ourselves in a corner by providing, like okay, so this show that you're on will go to mm-hmm. Apple. It'll go to Google, it'll go to Stitcher, it'll go to all of the things, YouTube, and I'm just giving them content. 
and they yeah. don't give me anything in return except for exposing more people to the content. Like they're the yeah. distribution channels. And that's the way it is for musicians as well nowadays. Yeah. Like you don't, you just give all of these companies your stuff. And ideally it's just this weird quid pro quo we've all come to agree to do. And that's why people external to our circumstances are like, well, you're going to do it anyway. Why would I give you money? And so, mm. or why would why would you expect anyone to pay for it? You're doing it anyway. So Jonathan, do you is, think do you think that people um, do you think that people actually have that attitude? Like, I mean, I think passively people have that attitude, but when I really tell people how like Spotify works, they're like, "What?" Like, I get no, DMs no. that are like, "What's the best way for you to actually get paid for your music?" And then I can tell them, you know, Bandcamp's the way that for a digital album, you should buy it on there. Right, right. But the, but the masses aren't... I guess what I'm saying is in the widespread agreement to use these platforms that I've outlined, that is implicit. The implicit sort of gesture there is that all of the content that people make, movies, TV shows, Netflix, like everyone... It's just I shouldn't have to pay more than the bare minimum to access everything yeah. uh, for free, almost for free. Like the same... Mm-hmm experience we have on netflix where we can just randomly flip through and watch a movie like you used to have to go first of all to the theater and spend a lot of money for each thing and now you're getting everything for a a fraction of it if you if you're paying for that kind of stuff and if not for music it's not even like i mean i think there are tiers of i mean i i do i pay for a digital um streaming thing because i have a family and it was just convenient um but it sucks i also I try to defend this by saying, well, I buy records and I go to shows and I I feel like I'm contributing to the culture. So at the very least, if my kid wants to hear some song, he can access it now using this this platform. So I don't think the masses think about this stuff too much. It's just gradually we've come to be conditioned to think that art isn't worth paying for. And um, mm-hmm. so while it's noble of some of us to just say, yeah, I'm doing a live stream on my thing because I need to do it, I'm just saying, and I'm not blaming us. Like, I'm doing it. Like, I'm doing it right now. This is, I'm complicit in this. But it, there is, if I step back and look at what we're doing, it is problematic. Like, we're, we have painted ourselves in this corner um, where it's accepted. And See, I think of, like, live streaming as busking. <laughs> like, I think it's, like, yeah, the equivalent sure. to busking. Sure. Whereas I think that, like, producing entire records um is like yeah the thing you're talking so, about so so that's what i'm saying though but the general public will not see they'll see those as equivalent they won't see the distinction you're making um you know if you're going to play a show and you're in a club i don't think i don't know i don't know if the general public would be like is that a step up from busking is it not is it the same is is busking considered lower class kind of activity like you know what i mean like it's very confusing and I, I I don't know. I don't know if we're not well, going to... So, like, I guess I was just thinking more of, like, the risk, right? Like, the hmm. the risk of busking. Like, you don't know how much you're going to make in a day. You go you go do it. Yeah. You don't know who your audience is going to be. There's this, like, amount of, like, way... There's a way in which it's spontaneous and unsheltered. Whereas, like, a gig, you know what your guarantee is. The hilarious part is, is that, like, like right now, those a thousand like my friend Nick was making this point yesterday. Nick, who's who plays in the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition, uh, Nick Dorado, who yeah. just actually I'm just gonna say this put out a beautiful uh, piano recording oh. that anyone could buy on Bandcamp. But like, 
under Nick's yeah. under Nick's name or Bo- Booty Band or Booty. Okay. Booty. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, you can link through like Instagram, I guess, uh, <laughs> or something. Right. Right. <laughs> but the point is, is that um, he, uh, they were talking about like how like those live streams, like that thousand dollar guarantee for a live stream, is more than like many of us are used to getting for a, li- a live show, right? right because we don't get that guarantee like we still tour on door deals often yeah well so all of these platforms couldn't really truly capitalize on the live show experience except when agents club owners bands paid them to promote the thing yeah so now in this period they're like what the hell are we going to do here to leverage content for our platforms well we might actually have to put up some money and mm-hmm. pay these people to do this finally so it is a weird i don't want mean to use the term reparations but i mean it's weird it's all of a sudden that's on one hand that's good that you're getting paid to do a live stream um but on another it's well i don't I, know i don't know i mean i think the interesting thing is that like we're talking about the inse- intersection of like people who make money off of mm-hmm. content and people who make content right and we're talking about it as content because that's like how they talk about it right well it's like, also and, and but i guess i'm also talking about how people consume that content and and yeah. the reason that content exists is because there's an appetite for it and um so that appetite has been i interviewed um dave ulrich uh, who started that? Um, it used to, there used to be a Canadian. It was one of the first digital music providers. It was called Zunior, and oh, he yeah. started it. I don't know, sixteen years ago. I don't think it really functions the way it once did. And he he made this point of saying, "We're going to have to get used to the fact that like these companies that are fighting things like Napster and and whatever else, like you can't compete with free." He said that. He just said, "We you can't compete with free," and I it always has stuck with me because. He was offering, um, you know, digital music. It was a, it was one of the first digital music stores that paid artists, and and so you would pay a very little amount to you'd pay like eight bucks for a record or something, which was relatively okay at the time. Mm-hmm. And so this whole notion of you can't compete with free has really stuck with me because that's what we're all doing now. We're all there's just they're all trying to modify their behavior um, to compete with free. And I think the consumers are like, why do I have to pay for anything? I'm so used to not paying for things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's this is a uh, this was a longer spiel about this stuff than I expected, but that's at the same time, I've learned things from you. Was this useful in any way? I I I would love like a more organized conversation about this with like everybody. Yeah, you know, in in the sense that I think it's actually like the issue, right? One, you know, for anyone who's working in media, it's like been the issue for a long time and the you know a gig worker is a gig worker well Um, i mean this has been an equalizer like everything is like for example i write for exclaim magazine for the first time in its history they did not publish a print issue for april 2020 and that's significant that's and i know that's for all musicians on some level that's in canada that is a significant cog in the wheel and if that it's it's one of the last standing music publications in the country. There's in fact it is the only one, really. Uh, weeklies are all gone. Everything's gone. So anyway, th- yeah. I okay. If you want to have that talk and you want me involved, 
just let me know. I will I will participate in that. I appreciate your insights on these on these issues. We are meant to be talking about Fiverr and the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition. And uh, the new release is You Wanted Country Volume 1. It's wonderful. I want to talk about it a little bit with you. Let's begin with the group. Uh, what is, because I've known you as Fiverr for a long time now, what is Fiverr and the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition exactly? It's just like me. And then the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition is Jeremy Costello, who's has a project called Special Costello. Wondrous, uh, wondrous project. Man, that's one, one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And uh, Nick Dorado, who has an amazing project called Booty, also like just an instrumentalist who enlivens any any project that he's in. Nick, um, uh, just so you know, Nick has been on this show when he was or is. Is he still in a band called Century Egg? I don't know if Century Egg is still active, although I think they might have a recording in the can, but Nick, Nick's in aquaculture with yeah. Jeremy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then there's Bianca Palmer, who's mm. an incredible drummer. Mm-hmm. And all three of them play with Beverly Glenn Copeland as well. Mm-hmm. So Bianca and Nick are part of like uh, the CMW, the Creative Music Workshop out on the East Coast and have like been studying improvised music for a really long time. Yeah. Jeremy's really into Prague and is like a great improviser as well. And so by Prague, by uh, the way, you mean progressive music, not the city of Prague in, in the yeah, Czech Republic. No. Okay. Just making yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 And he, yeah. And so like they all play together. Um, and I saw them play with a big booty band that was backing aquaculture at Sappy Fest of 2017 mm-hmm. and I thought I'd love to play with those three and so Nick and I um Nick had like written me an email maybe five years prior that I forgot about I didn't really know that the email was from Nick and then <laughs> I saw them like I saw them like uh play at the art gallery while I was doing sound there for this weird performance art thing called Dord mm. and then like wrote them a fan mail and then they like wrote back to me being like check your email like <laughs> like I've already written to you like you don't need to introduce yourself and then we were like wow we're mutual fans and so they were like yeah if you ever want to play together like let's play together so we made a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It happened, and we've been playing together since 2018. We have a full-length recording, but we decided we'd put this out first mm. just as a bit of an introduction because, as you said, a lot of people don't know the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition, although I did make up the name for them. so Right. So uh, some of this um, background is available for people on YouTube in the uh, top of a song 
um, documentary series that I hope we can talk about at some point, um, which is very entertaining. But thank you for that sort of uh, background. So the release is You Wanted Country, Volume 1. As far as I can tell, it has uh, one original song. Well, I guess it technically, does it technically have two original songs? There's a song you do with uh, a bonus track uh, with the highest order, your band, uh, your your other band, uh, backing you up. Uh, that's also an original, right? Uh, yeah. Show Me the Mark is the name of that song? Okay. Yeah. But the kind of um, spine of the, I consider the, what I consider the spine of this EP a song called uh, It Is What It Is. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, that's the original that I had written and then we arranged and we, we made a radio edit and a regular life edit and the regular life edit maybe showcases our improvisational tendencies at the end. In yeah. A yeah. Pretty drawn out way. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's, it's, it is great. And, and so the other songs are uh, Train Leaves Here This Morning, which was originally written by uh, Gene Clark. Uh, it won't be long, and I'll be hating you, which was originally written by uh, Johnny Paycheck, and then Why Do I Have to Choose, uh, which is a Willie Nelson song, and then, like I said, the uh, the song with the highest order. So it is one or two originals, and then uh, kind of a, a, tr- a tribute, and it's called You Wanted Country? Question mark. I, I, inflection goes up at the end. What does this mean as a whole? Then what is this release to you exactly? Okay, so I'm going to tell you that the reason why Show Me the Mark was on there is because we were supposed to, I made I made that recording, I hired the highest order to play with me on it. Um, it was for a movie soundtrack called Circle of Steel. And Circle of Steel was like going to do a big Toronto premiere. So I just like had thrown it on the recording. Hmm. Um, also because it was supposed to make us eligible for funding, which then we were actually rejected for so <laughs> okay. don't have to get into that. But the point is, is that it was just like a way of getting it up there. I really think of like the piece to be like the three covers and, and it is what it okay. is. Okay, okay. And um, it is what it is. Like, you know, if you if you got like a physical copy of it, that that's what would be on it, just so you know. Okay, um, right. Oh, the bonus track is not on it, on that physical yeah. version. Yeah. Okay. Got it. But I mean, we we haven't made the physical version yet, just to avoid confusion. But it won't. yeah, <laughs> okay. the bonus track won't be. Okay. Won't be okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, so the point is, uh, um, yeah. That's what it is. That's what it is. Okay. It is. I want to ask you a bit, a little bit about each of the songs, if if you, if we have the time to do that. And so I want to begin with It Is What It Is, which has, I think, one of the funniest opening lines. And forgive me if I find, if me finding it funny is uh, is wrong in any way. But raindrops, <laughs> on, raindrops on my window look like raindrops is the opening line. And it makes me <laughs> smile or laugh every time I hear it. Is that to you a funny, is that meant to be a funny line? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, Simone, I think you're very funny. I think you, we've we've gone through our history before. I've known you. Uh, when did we meet? Like 2003 or something like that. Yeah, in Guelph. So we talked about this on the last time. Maybe you were on, but anyway, I just I've always thought you were very funny. But you, your music is is I think viewed seriously. But I know you're very funny. So raindrops <laughs> on my window look like raindrops, and the delivery is so deadpan. It's like a like a Bill Callahan type joke where you're like, was that a joke? What was that? That seemed like sincere at the same time, but you, you would agree it's, it's something of a comical uh, line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what inspired that particular line? Oh, you, 
I mean, I think it's part of the larger flow of the song, which is just like the statement, the obvious statements that like also at different times can be imbued with like such deep meaning via metaphor. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, I mean, sort of, sort of conversely, one of the other, there's another very striking line uh, or couplet, I suppose, on on this song. There's a verse that ends with, and it seemed to me that nobody is free, but the few allowed to choose had better pick a good cage. That's fantastic. I just, I, that's another one where I'm like, holy Lord, that's a good line. Uh, what, can you talk about maybe what the significance of that one might be? Well, I think that it's, that's kind of the line that culminates the song. And I was thinking a lot about how there's this metaphor that that's often used about like chains or, or like being in prison, right? Mm -hmm. Like people feeling enslaved or people feeling like they are imprisoned when in fact they're not right. Um, Like there are all forms of all different kinds of freedom, Mm -hmm. but like if you're not incarcerated, you're not incarcerated. Uh, if you're if you're um, uh, not enslaved, you're not enslaved. And should we still be using these uh, realities as metaphors? I don't really think we should. And so I was thinking about like the culture that I'm from, which is like you know white settler culture mm-hmm. in Canada, and people really feeling like nihilistic often saying like there are no choices that we can make within capitalism that are ethical. So who cares? Yeah. You know, I'm using really acute political analysis to prove once and once again, that there's nothing that we can do. I see that as like a real current in the culture that I'm in. And it was something that really, really always bothered me. Um, And so I kind of wanted to just like get at that attitude in a way, which is like, you know, part of the general idea of the song is that it is what it is, which is a platitude that's thrown out by people who just want to say, like, accept your lot. It is what it is. Let's not get too deep into it. And it's not, right? And it isn't. And trying to really, like, just throw over these attitudes and be like, there's a way to accept things while also trying to resist them. Do you, does um, this so, does this feel particularly prescient or contemporary, given the kind of self isolation that we're going through and the kind of privileged whining <laughs> I've, yeah. I've been seeing about it? Because people are like, I can't do anything. Well, yeah, you can. You can do a lot more than a lot of people. Still, uh, that's how I've kind of been viewing things. Yeah, I mean, I think that there. I don't want to be too hard on people because I think that there are a range of things that are happening internally that like, like people are faced with a a pressure cooker. So like, absolutely. This is very stressful for everyone. I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm just saying, but, but yeah, but I'm with you because I, (laughs) I think that like people are acting like this is prison and this is not prison. You know, prison is a place where you can contract COVID-19. Yes. Like, like within, a day if someone else has it and there is you know you're choosing segregation if if you're choosing self self isolation and there's not good food you don't have access to your own toilet like there are people on prison strike right now you know and yeah. one of i i would feel like silly if i didn't bring up the fact that in laval right now there are people on prison strike and they're asking for the release of people with, from jail and all across 
like this continent yeah. for people asking for yeah. re- the release of prisoners from jail. And so like, yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think also it's like this time where like many of the freedoms that we're used to have been removed, but that it's really important then to consider like, you know, it, it, with the your, the absence of freedom, those of us who get to choose where we live, who we stay with, mm-hmm. these things, like, you know, we have to choose well. We have to choose with our hearts and we have to try to be, yeah, considerate. Yeah. Well, that's well said and I appreciate that. Okay, I want to move on to the next song uh, on the EP. It's Train Leaves Here This Morning. As I mentioned, uh, or maybe I didn't specify, this is a Gene Clark song, right? Yeah. And and what was it about this song that um, struck you as, I mean, you love Gene Clark, I understand that. Yeah, I mean, I just always love that tune. Uh, Part of the process of making this record was showing Nick, Jeremy, and Bianca the tradition that I love so much, because like, they, you know, they would show me like Herbie Hancock or Stevie Wonder, music I hadn't like paid all that much attention to in my life, Duke Ellington, like, I learned so much about music through working with them and then i i'm coming from a tradition that i like deeply know i could pull out any of the song you know a gene clark song and just sing it it's so in me and i just played it for them and they really enjoyed that one i i always like it because it's just like a a a great hook of just like this idea of like there's a train leaves here this morning i don't know what i might be on is like it's a double is that a double entendre I think so. I think so. <laughs> and then it's like, <laughs> you know, it's also just like got that oblique way of Gene Clark telling a story where the action's a little withheld and it's more observational. And yeah. I've always loved that about his writing. But the melody, of course, is so beautiful. It's a beautiful melody and it's uh, it's it's really haunting, this performance of it. You You all did a really wonderful job. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Then the, I really like Bianca's playing on it. It's pretty uh, amazing brushwork. I think. I believe uh, Bianca is kind of downplays her opening fill. Is that fair to say? <laughs> her fill. She's just like got this amazing lyricism to her playing. Yes. I find, and yeah. so it's it's like you can hear it. It she she she's always uh, acting out the character in the song and acting out the lyrics with her drumming, and and that comes with cross quite clearly with that opening fill for sure yeah and the solo wonderful yeah. spirit to bianca generally anytime i've interacted with bianca i'm like this this person seems kind of like a character and i <laughs> I, I, I like it i like it a lot and I, you 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 tend to um be drawn to uh fellow characters i would say when i think of some of your <laughs> collab like simone tb is someone you've worked with a lot kind of a character in her own way just like yeah i will always remember simone tb uh, in the in the masses of humanity, some of the people you work with, like Simone TB, Bianca, they stand out. That's all I'll say. They just they seem like interesting people, incredible people, incredible yeah. people. So the next song, I alluded to something I uh, about Bianca there that I learned in um, this uh, wonderful new documentary series that is on the YouTube there uh, on the Fiverr. Uh, sorry, the Fiverr YouTube. Uh, the series is called Atop of a Song, and I believe the. Um, train leaves here this morning and also uh the next song it won't be long and i'll be hating you uh, are profiled in a top of a song so let i want to get into a top of a song in a moment but um first of all it won't be long and i'll be hating you is a johnny paycheck song in this case 
Uh, I've never heard this before on a Fiverr record to my memory. I mean, other people have sung with you. Lead vocal, uh, Jeremy Costello, right? Yeah. Now, what brought that? That seemed, I was like, well, that is really out of left field. Why, why was that decision made, first of all? Jeremy is one of the most amazing singers in the entire world. And why would you ever get him into a studio and not make him sing lead? Right. Well, except that it's a Fiverr record. That's all. I'm, I I appreciate what you're saying. I've I've witnessed Jeremy. I've heard Jeremy's voice. I've thought the same things as you. I've seen Jeremy and Nick perform together as Special Costello, and I was just like, "What the? Why isn't this? Why isn't everyone talking about this?" I've thought that before. I'll say that right now. But my point here is, this is a Fiverr record. Is, does this mark a a sea change in how Fiverr operates? That you might have guest vocalists, so to speak. Well, I mean, Max Max Heineman sang a song on the last record. The Audible. Uh, did he? Oh, yes, yeah. that's correct. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I write songs for people, so it's cool when other people sing them. In this instance of doing this like work around cover covers, it just like was a tune that Jeremy picked and that we all loved playing so much, and it's a collaborative project. The other thing that's weird. For so long, I've been playing guitar, and no one ever asked me about that. And I play all the guitar on this record, so I'm playing the guitar during that song. What do you mean, no one? Um, no, you, no one's asked you about your guitar playing? Yeah, in my life, no one asked me about my guitar playing, and it's fine because I often play rhythm guitar, but I also do rip lead. And I think that it's a, <laughs> a gendered expectation, you know, like being a feminized person. Like people aren't like they don't they don't really think about you're playing or you're you're voicing and and in general i think like people don't think about instrumentalists voicing all that much but i do have my own style of playing and so you know i'm playing the guitar on there and uh i'm singing harmony okay and hang on a second it's, so it's just like a collaborative right. situation you know that's like <laughs> what i'm inviting with fiverr is a collaboration and like it's not about me being a star it's about me like being able to like galvanize people and instrumentalists of all forms including vocalists to be able to make this make make the best thing we can make and so for this song the best thing we could do was get jeremy to sing lead let me pause two things about what you're saying about your guitar playing i'll put two things forward to you You tell me what you think number one <laughs> number one first of all i have been playing more guitar every day uh recently and i'm yeah. i've been i've had a guitar in my life since I was 16, but just never really took to it because I ended up playing drums, and that had to be... Everyone was playing guitar, so I stuck to drums. Every once in a while, I've played guitar in public, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to learn it and figure it out. It's a puzzle. And every time I learn a new song or learn something new about the guitar, I'm just high for a day. I'm just like, wow. Awesome. I'd never have known this. So I think, and I kind of think you've been playing guitar in the same way as a, as some, as a student of it, um, with people around you that are considered the hot shots, you know, and you're using it the way lots of people use it, and now you're getting better and better and better, and it's happening in public a little bit, and so people kind of maybe are taking that for granted. That's on. That's my perspective on maybe you. The second thing is, I don't think people are impressed by guitar anymore um, as an instrument. Like I'm excited about it because I just have had it. I've had them sitting around my house. And now I'm finally feeling like I have the time and it's sort of therapeutic to kind of pick it up and learn stuff about it. Is it conceivable that you and I, people like us, think the guitar is more important than it is to some other people? 
I think that you've got a point. I don't think it's just the guitar, though. I see. You think people, you think I, people I, think of you as a, a singer and a songwriter, and they no, don't. No, 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 no. It's okay. not about me. No, I, I that that point was just like a little, a little, like cherry bomb, as my friends would say. <laughs> okay. But like for no, like for, the real thing is that I don't think people think about the voicing of instrumentalists, and that's like a a lot of what I'm getting at with the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition. Okay. Is that you can, if you get familiar with like Nick's playing as a piano player or as a saxophone player, you, or as a lap steel player now, you can hear Nick throughout all of those instruments as themselves. You can hear Jeremy's voicing as a bass player mm-hmm. in this incredible way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with Bianca. Like you, it, it would be foolish not to be able to recognize how oblique some of her playing is. Yeah. Um, and and that's like a thing that I think a lot of people who listen to jazz understand. Like, is that you can pick out uh, the different voices of different saxophone players, for instance. Quite obvious. I you think. Know, once, I think hard. Enough. Absolutely. I think hardcore music fans relate to what you're saying. Like, I, I can. Uh, I've been on a real kick with the Jesus Lizard lately, uh, a band that Ooh. was significant to me when I was younger. And uh, each of the players and the vocalists in that band are distinct and unique and have, to me, kind of reinvented those instruments. And But a lot right. of people wouldn't see necessarily think that because it's just not something they've thought that much about. So I'm, I guess what I'm saying is... But I, also, I, also Vish, less and less are people playing their instruments. Right. Like a lot of the pop music that you're listening to are sampled sounds. Yeah. And so that voicing in terms of instrumentalists, maybe people could recognize production. You can hear when Pharrell makes something. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's not actually like the playing that Mm. people recognize. Mm. And so that as like a form of literacy exists less and less. But it's both, you're talking about imagination in every instance. Like we're we're basically saying... Some of us can recognize other people's imagination, specifically idiosyncratic imagination, uh, in their approach to whatever they're making, maybe more than others recognize. And that maybe that's what you're saying. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I think maybe is that what you're saying? Let me let me phrase it this way. Is that what you're saying, Simone? <laughs> no, I'm just yeah, I mean imagination is voicing, I suppose. It is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Every we all have these pianos and like they're hundreds thousands of years old. Some of these instruments have been around forever. And then every new person who plays it, they may not realize it, but that's their personality. Like the same, you can get on Ray Charles's piano if if you have access to it, and you're going to play <laughs> piano in a way that he never played it in. It's it's his piano, but you're, you know, you're Nick, you're Nick Dorado, so you're going to play it the way Nick Dorado plays it, and then it becomes kind of your piano. It becomes Nick's piano. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I feel like we're on the same page, and just we flipped around the book a little bit. That's all. That's all that happened there. (laughs) Now, I have been alluding to this many times. A top of a song is a a new favorite thing of mine on the internet. What is a top of a song? Top of the song is like uh, within the tradition of like VH1 specials, like behind the music. Uh, It's like a deep dive into uh, a range of facts about the songs that um, we covered. And, you know, it's a little production that was made. It's in three parts. It had a purpose of trying to focus in a bit on 
both the useless information that interviewers kind of ask uh, <laughs> musicians about our practices um, and our records and also try to like um, give information about songwriters and about songs and um, focus in on the song, you know, because uh, to me, country music is so much a tradition of songs. And I wanted to talk about writers because I think that writers get short shrift often. And, you know, some there's more and less information about <laughs> about um, writers depending on who they are. But uh, I, I did just want to kind of focus in on, like, why we made the choices we made and the, their resonance, you know. Well, okay, that is a very uh, sincere answer about what a top of a song is. What about the kind of production aesthetic of this series? You mentioned uh, VH1, you know, it almost seems like a satire of uh, those kinds of things, but it has this sincere and factual element. Can you talk a little bit about the approach to, to, to the, the look of these things, the sound of these things, the voiceovers? Where did all that come from? Well, as you said, there's a lot of sincerity in it. So I think we wanted to I wanted to make like a vehicle for sincere information about the work. Um, but I didn't want it to be boring. <laughs> so I made something that I thought was funny within like the tradition of like music media, because music media is particular and it is more <laughs> or less entertaining. Um, and yeah, I mean, I yeah, I came up with the idea, and uh, Jeremy Jeremy's actually doing the voiceover, but his, his voice is modified. Yeah. And um, you know, there's that hilarious thing with like behind the music where it's like they're kind of not t talking about anything, and like the whole time you're just like looking at David Crosby, yeah, talk about like not the part that you care about right like never it's just like they got these interviews they smashed them together they yeah. edit it like really fast paced so that you feel like you're getting somewhere and then after like half an hour you you haven't like learned anything like i watched the one about mamas and the papas and it was like so unfair to mama Cass. like it was just it was just brutal hmm. like you know for someone who couldn't speak for herself anymore on account of not being alive yeah um, yeah the way she was spoken about was just like terrible but so i don't know like the steam of those programs is like pretty dubious to me and i but i thought that it like i would try to make like my best rip off you know that i could and just like have fun with in the editing suite and colin medley like helped clean up a lot of it and ran it to vhs which was like really sweet uh -huh, uh -huh, uh, yeah. um and shot the interviews but yeah it was like Really, on my end, I have to say it's a love letter to my band because I just like love them all so much, and I wanted people to know how beautifully they play and how thoughtful they are, and I want to give a bit of a sense of their personalities because I think that you can really also hear it in the playing, and and it would be nice for people to experience that resonance. Well, no, I, as I say, I, I find it uh, deeply compelling and entertaining. Uh, one of your big gets uh, in the series is the uh, music critic uh, Roger Freck. Uh, how, how exactly did you uh, land Roger? Uh, you know, you just try to get the big names, mm -hmm. and when you can, you do. 
it, it, I mean, I was surprised uh, because he's a bit, he, he kind of keeps to himself. So I, I was really amazed. But I, again, I encourage everyone to go on uh, youtube.com and look for a top of a song and uh, go to the Fiverr page and, and find it because it's, you'll learn a lot and uh, very, very fascinating. Okay. Uh, and I guess, in a sense, because we've already talked about um, the versions of It Is What It Is, the final song I want to ask you about is a Willie Nelson song called Why Do I Have to Choose? Well, what do you mm-hmm. want to say about that? Well, that's like a song that I always thought the production of was like really particular. Like it's that that 80s uh, Willie Nelson production that's got some, I don't know, synth going on that feels a little uh, underexplored in a way. And, but I love the tune. This you is know, this is this is from sorry to interject. This is from Willie Nelson's 1983 album "Take It to the Limit," right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So the 80s were weird. The, the 80s were weird to almost everyone from the 60s and 70s. I don't know what yeah, was and, what was going on there. And the truth is, is like around the production stuff, it's it's compelling because you've got like this classic songwriter like Willie Nelson who can always take like the simplest idiom and like extended to like the depth of its truth, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, I think of like Willie Nelson as so deeply loving, you know, the characters that he's singing from. And so there's something about like this classic trope of like cheating song, which tends to be like about the sneakiness or the duplicity of cheating. Um, And that's like what's in country. And like, in fact, like it investigates the shame of loving more than one person at the same time. Yeah. And I wanted to, you know, like, the, I don't think those songs often serve people who aren't cheating, <laughs> you know, like when, <laughs> yeah. you know, but they can make people who aren't cheating feel like they're cheating. And what is it to like love more than one person at the same time or to, you know, feel like, like love for more than one person at the same time. I, 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 I've always thought like that song like investigates this like line where like, why do I have to choose? See everyone, everybody lose, walk around and sing the blues, darling, I refuse. It's like this radical honesty about that is actually quite a beautiful thing hmm. to love two people at once and that it doesn't necessarily have to be um, like condemned. And I just like love that about that tune. So I, I wanted to cover it and I wanted to sing it as a duet with Jeremy because uh, it seemed like really possible for us to do. We we learned it together in a trailer at Scotch Village, um, where Jeremy uh, lives part of the year out in Nova Scotia. And I think that day we were supposed to work as a band to arrange the tune, but then like Nick had gone in this hot tub the night before in Fredericton of um, that was like full of gray water. Like I watched them walk into a hot tub that was full of water that was gray and sit in it for like five minutes. And I was like, is that hot tub even hot? And they were like, nope. And I was like, we'll get out of it. (laughs) And then like the next day we got to go to where we were working and they were so sick. So then me and Jared just like learned this as a duet and like put the work in on our vocals. And and it's it's so simple for us to sing together. So it, I was really pleased to be able to share that, you know. Well, it's it's lovely. I mean, the whole thing's great. I, I, I appreciate it very much. Is there anything more you want to say about uh, You Wanted Country Volume 1? I, I was going to ask you what the future holds for the series, but um, is there anything else you want to touch upon before we uh, move on? 
No, I, I really, uh, it's just an EP, right? It's a simple yeah. introduction to yeah. these players. And so I don't think of it as like stacking up in the same way that like one might evaluate a full length. I just wanted to put together some nice songs for people. And I think we'll be doing different volumes at different times because we, because exploring the tradition is something we all want to do together. When you went in to make it, I think you already said this, you, you had made a record length yeah. version or oh, sorry, you made a record of original songs, or did you make a record length version of this series that you you'd said a few things? And I'm sorry, I'm jumping all around. No, no, no. You We're, said, oh, we, go ahead. We made like a full length record of all originals oh, that isn't okay. out yet. Okay, okay. And it, and I think that I, um, it's rooted in my own sensibilities around country songwriting, but then also ourselves as like a, a unit of like improvisational play, players. Right. And so I thought, like, also to introduce this unit through this very conservative kind of approach to song will allow people to maybe understand and read more into it. It will give like a sonic context to a, a very different thing that we end up doing on the full length, which should be out within the year. Okay. I I wonder, I'm just speculating here, and you don't have to speak to this if you don't want to, but you said that you hadn't yet uh, created physical copies of this EP, does it stand to reason that when the uh, rest of the volumes are released, then maybe then you'll put out like a full length version of them? Is that? uh... Yeah, like volume one will be side A, volume two will be side B. Right. Okay. Just like around like the earth and the earth being like not needing too much new material. It just seemed like frivolous to put it out on a, on a, on vinyl at the moment. So is is volume two done? Uh, pretty much not recorded, but it's done in terms of other things. Yeah, I'm going to keep that. <laughs> okay, all right, it's fine. No, I just, 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 I don't mean to ask nosy questions, but it's uh, you know, as someone who's curious, that's all. I'm just asking. Yeah, I mean, like, like there were some designs that can't really be accomplished in this moment, right? Given social distancing, so okay. it's a little bit of a bummer. Okay, so uh, okay, so the next Fiverr uh, and the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition record will be out likely within the year, unless I assume, unless the year doesn't let you do that <laughs> uh, for various yeah. reasons. It's so hard to know. Like, I'd love to just like put it up now. You know, at this point, I'm like, hey, this music, but it's hard to understand what the future is. I mean, in this way, I can't imagine everything returning to how it was yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, the reasons why we had timed things had to do with the uh, strategies around, like, making the most tourable act, right? Like, yeah. for us, we wanted to be able to tour in a way that was, like, ethical and good for the planet. We wanted to, like, try to establish ourselves and be able to get uh, shows and workshops and do different things all around. And now it feels like everyone's reevaluating how things are working. I've mm. seen a few artists just be like, we're rebooking our June tour for September. Yeah. This seems like, like very wishful thinking. I understand like denial as a stage of grief, but I also am like, I think to think like, there's a full economic collapse, right? I think some like, people are saying things, expecting things to go back to normal, and they need to assuage insurance companies and whoever else might be like, hey, you canceled your tour. You got to reschedule. Like, I mean, it's weird. And festivals, some festivals haven't yet announced their 
as we're speaking anyway, some music festivals in the summer have not. They're just like, well, we'll see what happens. But I think they actually fully know they're not going this year. Yeah, it's it's hard because like I understand like a kind of optimism or trying to project like that it could be normal. But I think what it's not really contending with is is really the not the the just the virus, but the fact that so many of the venues that we know probably won't be able to stay open, yes. right? And yeah. and also like will people have the money to pay to go to shows? Right. You know, if, yeah. if, so I, I don't really know. And then it's like, well, how's the recording going to be? And what are our, our collective ambitions? Like mm-hmm. as things change in our lives, like what do we want to see happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we want to work? So I think those things will determine when the record gets put out. And then of course it's physical copy is also contingent on like, those pressing plants being yeah. open, right? Yeah. So yeah. who knows? I was being a little facetious, but yes, the future is really, really uncertain, and I think that's an understatement on some level. So, but I appreciate that you have plans and are working, and are you know that's having plans in this in this uh, landscape is uh, a, a form of optimism. So I, I and I don't mean I know that's a big word, and maybe <laughs> I don't mean to ascribe <laughs> something to you that doesn't exist. But I, I would say making plans is all you can do. Um, to, to try I, feel, to look I feel really like as a person who plays music that I'm always doing it with an optimism. Yeah. I don't, I don't, can't see it as like an, an act that isn't optimistic. So, you know, in that sense, that's, that's that. But like the other thing is that I'm also ready for everything to, to change. Yeah. And like, I think what I would love to see is like, you know, and I might actually be like, yeah, I'm working on like doing a little, um, survey for people. Uh, there's like a, little loose collective that I work with called Pitch Shift and Nick and I were organizing like this IRL like music and labor summit for for the summer that won't happen anymore Mm -hmm. but trying to like get people in this moment when our brains are spinning frantically to like try to like do a survey around visioning like how things could work differently yeah like how because the the old normal wasn't like working for a lot of people as we spent like the first half of this conversation <laughs> dissecting yeah and so then like how do we want the new normal to look and just i think it that's the most hopeful act we can do right now is like put ourselves towards like s- some idea of what would be the ideal um and then like try to work to build toward that okay well we look forward to that um is there where, where would you send people to learn more about Fiverr? I guess is is the short way of asking. Where can we get people to learn more about buying your stuff and learning more about your stuff? www.fiverrfiverrfiverr.com. Three fivers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that's got that's got everything, and then you can follow you on socials and all that stuff too. Yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. Simone, if we can go out on a song from this uh, EP, which one would you pick? Maybe there's only really one option. I don't know. What would you pick? Oh no, man! You pick it. Well, I don't want to pick it. You should pick it. It's it's insightful when the guest picks the song. I think it's like it's like they're answering a question. I mean, you are answering a question because I asked. I asked you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe put, we, uh, put, go ahead. Yeah, you, you, yeah. No, you say. No. What, you, what were you going to say? <laughs> oh, man. Come on, don't do this to me. <laughs> I uh, want to. No, let's go with it. Is what it is. What do you think? Do it. I think we should. Okay, this is. Let's go with the uh, radio edit. Regular life edit. Regular life edit. Okay, so this is a different take. Okay, this is. It is what it is. Uh, regular life edit 
by Fiverr and the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition from their new release, You Wanted Country, Volume 1. Uh, Simone, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, I wish you the best of luck with everything going forward. Thanks, Vish. You too. Raindrops on the window Look like raindrops The stairs are just a
Oh, very special thanks to Simone Schmidt for being on this, the 542nd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network, and it's available on all Apple and Google platforms and other things, too. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and are looking for, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook or follow the show on Facebook or follow the show on Twitter at Vish Creative or follow me at Vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation. You know, there's a $6 or more tier now that gets you exclusive audio content from my exclusive audio archives. As we speak, I, I am shortly going to upload a thing where my wife and I had a college radio show and on the penultimate episode of that show, everyone from Fugazi was on giving me life advice. So I'm going to upload that. So it's it's Brendan and Joe and Ian and Gee from Fugazi telling me how to live. It's fun. Anyway, go to patreon.com slash creative control to learn more about supporting this show and please do and it, it all helps and uh, it might be more necessary than you think anyway thanks again to live at masseyhall.com where you can watch beautifully captured concerts by great Canadian artists also Pizza Trocadero The Bookshelf Planet Bean Coffee and Granddad's Donuts for their in-kind support for this show uh, thanks as always to my friend Jim Guthrie for uh, letting me use some of his music on the show you can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org And finally, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creative Control and uh, maybe subscribing to the show so you can keep tabs on it and telling your friends so that maybe they should listen and do the same things that you do. It all helps, and I appreciate it. I will go, but I will be back before you know it. So thank you, and bye for now. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> <laughs>